Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we're joined by Todd Barnes, and hopefully today, Todd, the third time is the charm because we've tried to do this on a couple of other occasions and weren't able to make it happen. So I appreciate your patience with me and uh, very, very happy to have you join the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Christian. Nice to see you. That's very nice to see you too. Looks like you're joining me from a lovely home office. Is that right? I am home office in uh, Brentwood, California, just outside, just east of San Francisco. And uh, this is, I came back to San Francisco Bay Area after the Olympics in 2002. Um, This is where I first joined up with Jerry Anderson, who was the director of the venues department for SLOC. All right, fantastic. I wanna get into all of that a little bit down the road here, but uh, what are you doing in Brentwood, California? I'm doing the same thing that I was doing at the Olympic time and prior to the Olympics, I'm involved with uh, major large sporting events. I saw Populous in your email address. So you're working for Populous? Yeah, I work for Populous. Populous is a large uh, architecture firm that plans large sporting venues, permanent architecture, stadiums, arenas, convention centers, basically people gathering spaces. And after the Olympics, uh, Jerry Anderson and I joined Populous and I've been working with them since 2002. And uh, we started the event division for Populous, which is obviously my concentration. And I am a practicing architect as well. Well, that's fantastic. Most people that are in this event space are familiar with Populous and that organization. I do have to ask if things are going okay during this whole COVID pandemic, you know, it's hit the industry quite hard, but I don't know if that has the same impact on the infrastructure side of things necessarily. Uh, How is the organization dealing with the COVID pandemic? Well, overall, Populous is doing very well. Um, On the permanent facility side, things are going nicely, as well as on the event side. We have had a lot of events cancel out of it, out on us. However, being on the front end of events, um, planning, master planning for events in the future has kept us busy. And we have some pretty large clients that we work for that um, allow us to be able to do that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear things are going well. So, Todd, tell me a little bit about why architecture? You know, what was it that motivated you to become an architect in the first place and then to specialize in event architecture? Well, it was uh, really my mom and my dad from when I was a little boy playing with Lincoln Logs and Legos. And they said, hey, you should be an architect. So it was kind of drilled in. And then when I was 12, uh, my mom took me to a friend's architecture practice. And uh, this man, he was an owner and an architect owner of the company, a pretty decent sized architecture firm. He put on, for me, the most amazing marketing presentation. Certainly I didn't know that at that point in time, but even thinking about it now, I I was sold at that point in time. I wanted to do architecture. And so he became my mentor from that point on through high school and then through college. Um, I I worked uh, after I graduated from college, I worked for a few years and 
um, work for a small practice um, in Berkeley, California, just doing house renovations. And I got tired of it and, you know, young. So I applied for a job and lo and behold, it was working for Jerry Anderson. And lo and behold, he had a project that was almost to the point where it was beyond him. It was working for uh, FIFA World Cup that was here in the United States back in 1994. And so I went to work for him. And uh, that then led to Super Bowls, led to the Olympics, led to um, Major League Baseball and NC2A and a lot of the large events that we work on at our company. Now let's go ahead and think about Salt Lake 2002. So what were you doing before you joined the organizing committee and just how did you find your way to SLOC? Well, the same, I was doing the same thing, um, working in San Francisco um, ever since 1989 after I got out of school. And I started working at that time for an architecture firm called Thornton Anderson. Um, again, referencing to Jerry Anderson, who added uh, practice in San Francisco. And uh, uh, after the Olympics in, uh, or during the Olympics in Atlanta, uh, which where I was working with him, um, he picked up the position in, at SLOC in Salt Lake City and uh, convinced me to uh, come and work on it as well. So um, we sort of go from one event to the other together and uh, um, did so then. All right. Fantastic. So what, what, give me a sense of the timing there, Todd, uh, when did you come out to Salt Lake and start working on the Salt Lake games after Atlanta? I was there for, um, I was at worked on Salt Lake for about five years. Uh, so I believe my first trip there was probably in 1997. And at that point in time, there was very few that were, um, on the staff. Um, and, uh, that was also prior to anything that had to do with the scandal. So there was, um, you know, there, there weren't any conditions associated with that, but the, um, the, it was very limited staff. And during that period of time, when Jerry came on board, uh, there was a pretty large commitment that was necessary related to broadcast. And there was a deliverable of master planning all the venues to then be able to turn that over to broadcast and show and demonstrate what the potential layouts were going to be so they could start planning on their end. So coming over to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, did that require that you had to leave your position with the architectural firm or were you kind of just loaned or seconded to the organizing committee and still a part of the firm? Did you have to make a, a break? I didn't. I actually was able to maintain with the company I was at and be able to uh, work as a consultant, which allowed me to maintain the other event projects, hoping that you're uh, basically the Olympics is only until 2002. Wanted to ensure that I had other clients coming off of the Olympics that I was going to be able to easily stay with and be able to manage. So I was able to work as a consultant through that duration of time. It just required an awful lot of time, travel and effort in Salt Lake City to manage around it. 
And was that basically like a full-time role there in Salt Lake then, or did you also service other clients while you were working with the organizing committee? I serviced other clients as well. And so it was very close. I guess you could call it full-time because I was working around the clock when you get down to how many hours that was uh, required amongst the event projects that I was working on along with the Olympic planning project. And did you actually relocate to Salt Lake or did you stay in San Francisco and then just commute back and forth to Salt Lake City? I did both. Um, I, uh, for the first few years, I commuted um, once a week or at least every other week to Salt Lake. And in the last year, I moved and ended up relocating up to Park City, uh, which was where my concentration was in uh, Deer, at Deer Valley Resort. So in terms of games time, that's where you were working primarily was up there in the Park City area in the uh, Deer Valley venue? Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, all focused at Deer Valley um, in the early days. Um, again, in the master planning, I concentrated on the uh, mountain venues. So uh, Snow Basin, Park City Mountain Resort, uh, Soldier Hollow, and uh, did I say Deer Valley Resort? Um, so all, all the snow venues, um, if you will, that basically after a few years narrowed down to just Park City Mountain Resort and Deer Valley Resort. And then in the last two years, it was just specific concentration um, on Deer Valley Resort. And then with respect to your role at Deer Valley, were you the site manager then? Was that the role that you played there? Yeah, it was. I was the event designer. Uh, so overall responsible, Charlie Windsor. Uh, and Scott Bloom were the site managers on the job. So I was overall responsible for assuring that the parts and pieces and components were placed in the right location in accordance with what the design was. I have to go back to you coming on initially and starting to work on this project. Coming out five years out, you know, a lot of people might say, well, gosh, what do you need five years for, right? <laughs> like, it, it, does sound, it sounds like a very, very long time to plan an event that lasts for just a couple of weeks. What do you tell people when they ask you the question, well, why do you need so much time to plan an event that only lasts for 17 days? Well, you know, what's amazing is I continue to ask myself that question all the time. But the, the reality is that there, uh, there are so many massive number of venues uh, between competition and non-competition venues the planning amongst the different cities, different locations, and the transport systems are so important to be able to have. The infrastructure that is necessary to put in place really requires that amount of time to piece together the puzzle in order to be able to make it work. So while it seems like it should be an easy task, well, it, if you think about just getting married requires a year in itself usually to be able to plan it out unless you're going to Vegas. Something like the Olympics is just an incredible, massive undertaking overall. That's right. You can't uh, Las Vegas or elope an Olympic Games, right? It, it takes a, uh, a fair amount of uh, proper planning. Now, you mentioned a few moments ago that when you came on board five years out, the committee was quite small. So what was it like working in those early days with the organizing committee with a really, really small team? Well, the, the small team was really um, Jerry and Karen Koppel and Lisa Friedman and a few others that were in that department. Um, it was very easy at that point because all the designs were ours. Uh, we owned them and were responsible for all the aspects associated with them. And so when I say that it's easy, 
Um, it's easy because as time goes along and more people are added, then you just get a whole lot more questions about your designs and did you think about this and did you think about that? And a lot of people that uh, um, are concerned rightfully about the designs, but because they haven't participated for such a lengthy time, they have no idea about the designs that we considered through the duration. So I have to ask you this question. I talked a little bit about this with with Karen as well when we did our podcast, and that and that is, you know, for me, I've always had a huge amount of respect for the architects because they probably end up knowing more than just about anybody else when it comes to delivering the games. Not only do you have to basically understand all the requirements of all the functional areas, <laughs> um, but you also have to work. And so that means working with the entire organizing committee and to understand their needs. And then you also have to work with various stakeholders, the the venue owners and the operators. You have to to work with the municipalities, the, the governments, and, and, and as well, the uh, national federations or national government bodies and the international federations. So, you know, what's that like, you know, having to try to come up with a with a design solution when you have so many actors, you know, that you have to involve. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough balance for sure to be able to navigate through all that. Um, but the, the venues department was uh, very intelligent from the aspect of the fact that Jerry had been through Olympics. He had been through uh, Super Bowls. He had been through large sporting events before. So there was sort of a, template that is there in place on the event architect side to be able to model and mold after. Certainly every single event that you work is different from the next event and every single venue that's either, like I said before, competition or non-competition is unique in its own way as well. They all have particular matters associated with it uh, from the local governments to permitting, fire marshals, um, all those particular aspects, as you say. So you really have to um, take a, a hold of all those particular areas and say, if you just narrow it down and say, you know, I used a wedding a little while ago. Well, I mean, if, if you take a wedding, you, you have a venue, you have uh, an official who's going to marry you, you have um, a photographer that is there. Uh, you have all of your guests that are attending. So that's just a, a really, and then you have to go and maybe you need to get a tent or something like that. Sometimes that requires a permit. You go and you narrow it down in all those particular aspects and every single one of those is there in a massive way associated with the Olympics from your broadcast or your photographer side of it. Um, to the guests who are all the ticket holders that attend the venue, to merchandise, um, whatever ceremonies that are going to take place at your particular venue, um, video boards, uh, the large giant grandstands that we had to build and put in place, concessions, concession managers, and whatever it is that they wanted to do. And when you take all this and you have to then build it and construct it, and in many cases, as uh, was a result for me, on the side of a mountain, which is basically today a ski run, 
Um, to say that you're going to have to do all that and convince local officials um, that you are going to be able to do it successfully, meet codes, meet the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, all those particular matters, it's just an incredible, incredible undertaking. Well, it sounds like a tremendous undertaking. Were there some parts of it that were more challenging than others? Were there some items that were particularly difficult uh, where you had to be creative and come up with some, some you know, creative solutions to some of the challenges that you were facing? Yeah, but very much so um, all along the way. I mean, one, you know, when you work in the early days in your master planning venue and you have a certain capacity that you're trying to achieve um, and you're trying to achieve it so that um, all of the sports can be able to function together and interweave into one focused area, for example, um, many of the mountain venues that we designed um, all had multiple sports that occurred at those venues. And it was genius because you didn't have to have separate venues because every time you had a separate venue, it had different issues and elevated costs associated with it. So to be able to interweave the sports schedule in and amongst um, uh, the sporting competitions themselves. So for example, at Deer Valley, uh, we had aerials, um, moguls, and slalom, and each one of those uh, sport competitions ended up at the same finish area where you'd have a giant grandstand and the fans be able to witness it all. That then meant that we had an incredible undertaking in terms of assuring all that could possibly occur, meet the kind of ticketing capacity that we wanted to achieve overall, and then assure from the spectator standpoint that they are able to view all the facilities in a common area. Certainly the sporting events occurred on different days, but the fans would be then focused and angled in a proper way in that finish area to see all those um, sports take place. That was incredible, incredible to be done at multiple venues. Wow. All right. I've got to go back to the early days uh, still um, because there were a couple of regime changes there in the organizing committee, right? You started out with Welch and then uh, Frank Jocklick comes in and you have the Frank Jocklick era and then the scandal hits and Frank resigns and then new leadership is brought in uh, with Mitt. What was that like, you know, having to go through these changes and did they have any kind of impact on the work that you were doing? To tell you the truth, I, I was very well sheltered from all that. Um, I didn't really integrate in that aspect of it at all. Um, in my world as a, as a designer, all I knew was that I had to get this venue built and completed. And from that aspect, I don't think that I noticed any changes in terms of the way that I was working and the direction that we were focused. There was one goal and that was that, you know, in, in, February of 2002, we were going to have the Olympics and we had to be able to get there no matter what we did. And the politics were not going to change that aspect of the design that was necessary to be completed. So that's a long way to say that I was really sheltered from it. It was no real noticeable change. Um, certainly, there must have been changes for others within the organization, no doubt. Um, but working as an architect, I was really sheltered from that aspect.
the Salt Lake 2002 organizing committee was pretty lean, uh, I would say, in comparison, particularly with uh, later editions of the games who had a uh, you know, much larger staff. Um, but uh, still, uh, the organizing committee grows and the number of people grow with it, which means that maybe you have to interact with more people. You know, maybe at the beginning you're interacting with one person that oversees or is responsible for the early planning for several different functional areas. And then as those areas get staffed out, that's more people that you uh, potentially have to deal with. So what's that like working in an organizing committee that grows over time, becomes uh, much larger than it was in the beginning? It, it's uh, frustrating, I guess, is the, is the easy way to say it. Because um, uh, when you're there in the early days and you go through the master planning, then you go through a phase of design development and design. So you've gone from conceptual to design development where you're getting more focused on what your design actually needs to be. A lot of the staff didn't come on until about a year out from the uh, sport itself, from the, from the event itself. <clears throat> and in that regard, you had people coming on board that really just want to work for the Olympics. And they're coming on from all walks of life that many of them have a little bit of an event experience. Um, a lot of them had some event experience, but everybody's been to an event. And so they've all seen something that they think is just great that then they come over to your desk and they want to challenge you for did you do this? Did you consider this? How about if we did this? And so at one point in time, I just took all my drawings. I pinned them up on the wall in my office. I kept them there and I would just say, why don't you sit down and look through and I kept them in order from year by year so they can go through all the design iterations that we had gone through. So there were hand sketches there. There was CAD files that were there and they go through and sort it out for their own because it really became a matter of constantly defending the work that you had put together, that you had spent a considerable amount of time and effort putting together and been challenged by numerous people prior to any of them coming on board. And so um, it, it, it was great from the sense that you get to know people and you get to engage in conversations, but it was difficult from the aspect of just constantly defending the work that you had completed. And at some point in time, that just becomes impossible to do because there's so much other stuff to do as it is. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you can search your memory banks. Were there any particular, were there any particular changes that were requested where you just kind of shake your head and you're like, uh, I can't believe these people are asking for this. Well, there, there's always that when you come and pose something to an architect, <laughs> an architect thinks they know everything. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily say that uh, any of the designs that were put in place were uh, something that uh, were absolutely 100% the, the way that it was necessary to be done. But coming in as late as a lot of these people did in the process, it became very challenging from the momentum standpoint, the permitting standpoint, and the cost standpoint to be able to make any of those changes at that point in time. I would imagine, though, it's important to have some kind of continuity amongst the architecture team, the design team, because if you're there for five years, then you you understand 
all of the history, right? You you understand the context. You know why decisions were made, and this is why this tent is put here, and this is why the tent is you know a hundred square meters, and it's not two hundred square meters, and you understand why those decisions were made. Where if you're an architect and you're coming in at the very late stages, maybe you don't have all that history. No, and and that's absolutely true. Um, and on top of that is that I came in from being an event architect. So I had a, not only an event architect, but one that had worked on massive events prior to that, um, between Super Bowls, baseball, all-star game, and uh, uh, the Olympics in Atlanta. So uh, coming in with that kind of knowledge and ability to be able to compare is something that is really important as well. So I came in with a lot of respect, having that um, experience underneath my belt. Um, and there were a lot that were uh, venue designers that we had on board that had that same kind of experience with them. And that is really important to then, as I continue to use the word, defend the plans that were put in place. I want to come back to the template thing. You mentioned that you kind of have this standardized template. These are the kind of the checklist items that you go through when you're designing a venue. Are there any variations in the checklist between indoor and outdoor venues? Is it different building in an arena versus creating something on the side of a mountain? Yes, absolutely. Um, when you're on the side of the mountain, that's all you got. It's you and the wilderness. And so everything that you build there is unique to that particular site location um, from, you know, the, the fans access up. I mean, from their entire journey through the course of the day, the fan access up, uh, merchandise concessions. Once you get to the seating location, the stands and the 10,000 seat grandstand that was put in place to the video board structures, all a massive undertaking to be able to do that. Uh, great build out in terms of the operations compounds that are necessary associated with all those particular functions. When you go to an indoor venue, uh, a lot of the space is already there and built in place. Um, but what the difference is, is that the venue can is is the size of the venue, but the Olympics bleeds over the walls of the um, arena or indoor facility out into the parking lots. And so a lot of the operations compounds that we had built in place at Deer Valley, for example, are the same operations compounds that would be necessary at, at an arena, say the Delta Center or um, any of the indoor facilities that were put in place. Otherwise, a lot of that capacity can uh, operational elements can occur inside the venue as they normally would. Another challenge uh, that can happen with some of these outdoor venues is power. Um, so any particular challenges with respect to energy, um, temporary or trying to get uh, permanent power up to those uh, mountain venues? Well, um, the Olympic Committee had a, a really good plan in place and brought in an electrical master planner to master plan the electrical at all the venues and contracted out um, not only for permanent power, but also for generated power as well. And so they were very smart. I mean, I've always say that you're, you, you either, you're either made or broke based upon your electrical. I mean, you can't have your event without the, 
electricity occurring. So there was strong concentration on that occurring. Um, some of the electrical that was on the side of a mountain had to be airlifted in with helicopters to be put in place because you were in such remote locations that you couldn't actually access those areas. And the majority of that infrastructure was put in place starting about a year out and then continued through the course of the uh, summer months, spring and summer months after the snow melt. So it could be virtually all in place um, in a permanent type of a way and a temporary type of a way wherever possible um, so that there wasn't as much as an electrical build out necessary during the games time. Um, in the last two months before the games, then you start to have all of your components come in site, come on place, office trailers, tenting, all those facilities. The base root structure for the electrical would be in place, but your secondary electrical distribution would come in and start to spread out to all the different facilities. What about broadcast? You mentioned broadcast. Uh, you touched on that just a little bit uh, earlier. Camera position is so important for any sport, but particularly these winter sports. Um, you know, what was the process that you had to go through to make sure that you had all the platforms in the right places and and uh, enabled those games to look amazing on television? Yeah, it was it was multiple multiple broadcast tours, and you know, it, at that point in time, you know, was back in two thousand two. So a, a lot of it you had to imagine what was taking in place in the two-dimensional world still. Um, we did have renderings that were able to be completed. In this day and age, you can certainly model everything on your computer easily in 3D to be able to get that understanding. And where I'm going with this is that um, at, at the mountain venues, there was nothing there in place. So when you, we would go through with broadcast to be able to identify locations where the broadcast positions would want to occur, camera positions in particular, but cable pathing to get to those camera positions where the host broadcast booth would be located, where any sort of set area or flash interview would take place with the, um, with the, uh, at the sporting event once the competitor was completed uh, with their run. Um, it's all in the imaginary. So uh, we had to work with Deer Valley Resort um, and with the sport managers uh, for the uh, for the uh, sport itself. Uh, they would lay out uh, either with cones or some sort of markings uh, their imagination where the competition course would take place, so that the broadcaster then could understand um, all the different elements and how it was going to potentially occur and uh so that we had a base plan that was put in place um then prior to uh, say the camera positions being put in particularly at the mountain venues um there would be a walkthrough or two or three with the camera operators with the technical crew to assure that the placement of those camera platforms would be proper with minimal adjustments necessary afterwards there's always additions there's always changes that come with camera platforms in order to be able to get that Emmy award-winning shot that they want. Um, but it, it is a it is a pretty extenuous process. Well, you've done a fantastic job of really enlightening everyone's understanding, including myself, about uh, some of the things that, and I know we're just scratching the surface uh, 
of games design 101 here. I really appreciate you doing that. I'm sure you've got a lot of stories that you want to share too. So I want to get to those. Any stories or memories from the early days that we haven't already touched on that you've got in your memory bank that you want to share with us? Well, in the early days, it was just really getting acclimated to um, Salt Lake City itself and what a wonderfully amazing city that it is. And so I just really enjoyed my time over there. But um, one in particular, the organizing committee would put you in different hotels. Um, Literally every week I was staying in a different spot. And one in particular um, was straight across from the uh, tabernacle in the square. And looking out the window and looking straight onto it, it was just an incredibly memorable experience about how wonderful of a community that uh, Salt Lake City is. Otherwise, in the early days, um, one in particular just had to do with uh, trying to really chart out the course itself. And one of those times was during the winter. And let's just say that I worked at the mountain venues, but I'm not the best skier, that's for sure. And so uh, we got up to the top of the Mogul's Run and... um, I looked down and said, holy expletive (laughs) was basically straight down. And so they looked over at me and said, are you going to be okay?" And I said, just go. I'll find my way down. But you're already halfway down the mountain before the course starts. And then it was just uh, a matter. It took me skidding and sliding down and on my butt just a on the side of the mountain all the way down was incredibly challenging. (laughs) Well, it sure gives uh, people an appreciation for the incredible things that these athletes do on the sides of these mountains. Um, Oh my God, it's tremendous, isn't it? Yeah. So leading up to games, so before games time, but in those later years, of course, there was 9-11 that happened. But, you know, what are some of the memories that you have of those that, you know, those final six to 12 months uh, before games time? Just really um, a, a few in particular is the the amount of uh, interaction that needed to occur and the amount of interaction that was necessary. Because at that point in time, we were fully focused up at the venue itself, but the overall overarching communication was coming from the main office down in Salt Lake City as to procedurally how things were supposed to occur. But at some point in time, there is separation between the procedural side and the actual practicality of where you're working. And so to try and intermingle that together uh, was something where we had a lot of focus. Uh, The permitting process was extenuous in itself. Um, to be able to go through and actually achieve a permit for a uh, grandstand that is 10,000 seats that uh, literally um, on the front side of it, you are about 15 feet or so from the snow up to your first level of seats. But because the fall off of the mountain is so steep, uh, the backside of the grandstand, uh, which had probably about 40 to 50 rows of seats, 
the backside of the grandstand was a sheer wall that was literally 120 feet tall. So it, it allowed for an, an amazing graphic on the backside of the grandstand itself of just a tremendous uh, look opportunity. But what it created also was just this an, an amazing engineering feat when I walked up to the venue one day as the cabins that are the broadcast trailers and the press trailers that are airlifted by crane up to the very top of this 120 foot tall structure that then are set in place 120 feet above the ground. And all this equipment is on the side of a mountain is just was a really amazing feature to a be proud of that we designed something like that, but B that could even be accomplished. Uh, what was your primary responsibility during games time itself? During games time, it was just assuring that all the aspects that were associated with design was taking place properly, uh, associating primarily with the site manager. Uh, things would still uh, change constantly, and you can't be everywhere on the venue site all at one time. So it would be a matter of getting into the um, venue early, uh, do your rounds, which means go and check on literally everything, see where there's any particular problems, where tenting is coming loose, where uh, there may be some snow melt that is occurring that's causing problems, where maybe some restrooms haven't been flushed uh, just quite yet. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You have to walk through every single aspect of the facility and assure that it's safe on all sides. And that's the way that it is through the course of the entire event um, to assure that all those particular matters are being taken care of properly. So you're really working behind the scenes, not working in front of the scenes, not in front of the people in terms of um, the presentation side of it. It's just assuring that the safety is taking place. So you're working very hard during games time to make sure that it all runs smoothly. Do you ever get any time to enjoy the competition? I did. Um, on the last, well, there are two in particular. On the last day, um, I was able to really take it in and just really enjoy the, um, I believe it was aerials at the final there. And it was just a, amazing to be able to soak it in and realize you know, what you've done for the last five years. And then separate um, from that, I was actually able to go to the uh, U.S. hockey event um, in their final game and just be able to just appreciate an indoor venue that the U.S. is there. And the amount of energy that came out of that was just in incredibly overwhelming. So you work on these games for five years, then they end. Of course, you've been working on other projects as well. But was there anything that you learned there working in Salt Lake that, uh, you know, lessons that you continued to carry with you post games? Yeah, I, I learned how cold it is to work outdoors in a snow venue <laughs> and how you can freeze completely and how quickly your uh, toes uh, freeze up. Uh, that that's one, but the, the other is just to, you know, like a lot of events, just the lifelong relationships that you build based upon the experiences that you have with people, the common experiences that you have. And I maintain touch with so many of them now, either by text, email, or Facebook. And it's just uh, really tremendous from that aspect of it. I totally agree. And 
Well, you were able to work with really one of the icons of this industry and Jerry, um, who passed, I guess it was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. He, he was, uh, my mentor and my business partner, my best friend, all of that. And, uh, he, he put together an amazing show. That's for sure. I mean, just definitely one for the memory banks of all time. Well, hopefully he's carrying on that tradition wherever his soul is these days. Uh, he's uh, building grandstands up in the heavens, Sunos, up in the clouds. All right. Well, we're about to our final segment, but, but, but before we get there, Todd, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else uh, that you have in your list of things that you've been thinking about that you haven't touched on. Well, just just really the the interaction that that needs to take place. Um, what I didn't mention in that whole permitting process, and I mentioned the the uh, that I come from the architect event architect side, but the, there's so much of a difference between an understanding of what an event is for an event planner or an architect. They're two completely different worlds. For example, I work for a regular architecture firm now. They don't have a really great understanding, even to this day, as to what it takes to be able to put an event together and to then also be an architect at the same time where I could go and literally work on any permanent building. Um, to be able to make others understand that is very difficult. So we did bring on architects, permanent facilities architects um, that uh uh, were either from any of the local areas where they had uh, uh, the ability to sign and seal the plans. Uh, so they were permanent architecture firms and to be able to establish a relationship with those architects and be able to explain and try to get them to understand what we were trying to achieve overall was a very difficult process because they came from that architectural background. So um, being able to um, walk the walk, but also be able to talk the talk is such an important thing in events. So many people have been to events and see stuff that they like, but um, the ability to actually put it in place, um, either from the functionality or even from the cost standpoint, is something that is uh, difficult to be able to achieve. Do you ever catch yourself saying, you know, when you see a picture of a venue or you walk past a venue? Hey, I designed that. Isn't that something? Well, um, I do that, but more often than not, I say, "Oh, that was a venue that used to be there. But now it's just now it's just a parking lot or the side of a mountain." Well, that's certainly the case for temporary venues, and and uh, you know that that's that's okay. But you know, here in Salt Lake City, we still are using all of the venues oh, yeah. in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, so the legacy yeah, of the games here, uh, I think, from an infrastructure perspective, particularly, is uh, quite strong. Yeah, it's wonderful. I had the ability to be able to go and and uh, see the cauldron a couple of years after the game, and the monument they put in place there is is pretty impressive. So you were in the. Uh, Salt Lake area off and on from 1997 through 2002. You know, maybe you were listening to songs on the plane or in the car or at a venue during a competition, but is there a song that uh, 
remind you of your time in Salt Lake? Yes. Um, well, I I grew up uh, as a, a Kiss fan. Went and saw them for the first time in 1979. Don't tell anybody that I just dated myself. Um, and when during closing ceremonies, which uh, a lot of the staff had the opportunity to be able to go and enjoy the camaraderie with each other. And then Kiss came out and playing rock and roll all night. Oh, my God, that was the most incredible thing to be able to see. And then literally right before COVID happened a few uh, back in February, I saw Kiss in Los Angeles and just, you know, the memories of all that experience with the uh, with their songs was just really amazing. They're even today, they still have it. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning Kiss. You know, several of our listeners, our pre previous guests on the podcast have talked about that as one of their musical highlights of the games, seeing that closing ceremonies and seeing Kiss perform uh, rock and roll all night. So thank you for doing that. That's on the Spotify playlist that everybody can go to and see all the songs that have been nominated by our guests. Now we'll move to the food portion. Did you have a restaurant that you like to go to that was one of your favorite places to go eat or hang out while you worked in Salt Lake? There, there was one that I didn't frequent all the time, but it was one that is definitely memorable and uh, one that I really enjoyed going to. And on in the early days on the uh, way up to Snow Basin, um, before they put in the uh, uh the pass through, uh, you'd have to sort of go through Huntsville and off to the side of it was the shooting star saloon. And it's just an old, amazing, rustic mountain bar. And you walk inside and there's a St. Bernard's head that is up on the wall and heads of bison and deer and then all over the entire bar is littered with uh, dollar bills that someone has written their name on. They've autographed it and then they've pasted it up on the wall, literally wall to wall, just like that. And oh, my God, they had the best burgers there. So stop there uh, once or twice um, on my way to uh, Snow Basin. And then, of course, the one that was a real go to was Deer Valley Resort. You can't. You can't ever not miss uh, Deer Valley Chili. They still sell it in the stores over here in the Bay Area, and it's good stuff. All right. Fantastic. Deer Valley Resort. And what was the name of the saloon again? Shooting Star Saloon. All right. Deer Valley Resort and Shooting Star Saloon. Well, we're going to put those on the map in Huntsville. We'll put those on the map uh, so that everybody can see all the restaurants that have been nominated by everybody. Nice. I like going out to that area. I'm going to check that out, the Shooting Star Saloon. Okay. Now, our final question for you. As you survey five years of memories, um, is there one that just stands out to you as, as giving you goosebumps? You know, it's, it's an inspirational memory that just brings, you know, warmth to your soul whenever you think of it. It, it had to be the um, when I was uh, – I had been – uh, considering about a year out from the games, uh, resigning from it. I just didn't like the, uh, the aspects of all the people that were coming on board. And, um, I was talked out of that and to 
just because I wanted to have have that overall extra Olympic experience that I also had in Atlanta. And walking into the uniform distribution center and picking up my uniform and looking at it and just being so proud of, you know, working for the organizing committee and the accomplishes accomplishments that we are about to complete was just so amazing to me. I mean, it really gives me, you know, great fondness and memories now just walking through that and just a wonderful experience of how efficient their uniform distribution was. Oh, I have to go back to this a little bit. You know, organizing these games is hard and it can, you know, you're in a high pressure environment and the stakes are real. And it's interesting that you actually entertain the notion or, you know, you're saying, hey, you know, maybe I don't want to do this for the last year. What was the message that flipped you to say, okay, you know what? I'll stay on. Well, it was really that. It was a hard, hard conversation that I had with Jerry. And uh, I mean, I, I really didn't like the the aspects of getting challenged so much with the designs. And it just seemed like there was just uh, too much interference. And uh, I think that it was probably during the course of maybe uh, four margaritas or more that he had me convinced that I needed to stay uh, through the duration just because of the I'd been through so much and to be able to finish out and see what an amazing accomplishment it was. And I would have regretted it if I would have left uh, because it truly was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Well, I'm glad that you stuck it out and that it turned out to be such a wonderful thing for you. And I'm also glad that you have st- you have taken the time to join us on our podcast today and share these wonderful memories. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing in this space, or they want to just share some of their memories of Salt Lake 2002 with you, what's the best way for people to reach out and contact you? Well, you can always uh, contact me through our website at populous.com. Um, or my email address is Todd, T-O-D-D dot Barnes, B-A-R-N-E-S at Populous, P-O-P-U-L-O-U-S dot com. All right. Fantastic, Todd. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really sincerely appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Christian.